Hi, I'm Molly Moran, and this is the Table Wine Podcast. I'm excited to be joined today by author Michelle Wilgen. Michelle is a writer, editor, writing teacher. She's an all-around amazing wordsmith. She's written four novels, the most recent of which is Wine People. It is a novel set in the very exciting wine industry, so, you know, I have to promote it. It's the story of two women who work for a wine importing company and decide to go out on their own. So it's really a deep dive into women in business, uh, friendship, careers, and obviously wine. So Michelle will be with us in just a bit. You don't have to love wine to get a lot out of this book, but obviously I think it helps. And, you know, maybe buy a bottle of wine from us and drink while you read. But before we get into our conversation with Michelle, it's time for our aperitif, a little bit of fun knowledge to wet your palate. Coming up in the episode, Michelle and I are going to drink an Italian wine that is made from the Moscato varietal. And I know that just that word makes people panic. (laughs) So I wanted to give you a little bit of information about Moscato. It is fascinating because there are 200 different varietals that are related and are part of the Moscato family, also known as Muscat. So depending on where in the world it's from, it either goes by the name Moscato or Muscat. I think the Moscato that so many of us are familiar with is Moscato d'Asti, and that is Moscato that is coming from the town of Asti in Piedmont, Italy. In that case, the grape is Moscato Bianco. That's the same grape that's in Asti Spumanti, if you've ever had that. And I think what a lot of us associate with Moscato is sweetness. And while that can be true and is true in Moscato d'Asti and Asti Spumanti, it does not have to be true. So I think that's one of the things that I find fascinating about this grape. There are all of these different varietals, most of which are named after the place. So for example, Muscat of Alexandria is another common varietal. They're named after the places that they came from originally. That doesn't mean necessarily where they grow now. And yes, they can be done in a dessert wine style, you know, very sticky, sweet honey and all of that kind of orange blossom, delicious carameliness. They can be light, sparkling things like we see in in Asti. Or you can have them dry. The southeastern part of Spain is really known for both dessert wine made of what they call Moscatel and dry versions of Moscatel. We have one that we really love called Molino Real. And so this is really just a call to explore Muscat, Moscato, and to not automatically dismiss it. It does smell like flowers and it does smell like fruit. And that can often mean that we think it's sweeter than it is. But regardless of what you're drinking, it's really quite delicious. So get out and explore Moscato. Now to pop the cork, or in this case, I don't know what's the, what noise am I going to make? Flip the cap. Flip the flip the cap. <laughs> pop the cap. Um, author Michelle Wilgen is here with us. We're going to talk about Michelle's book in a little bit, but for now, we're just going to drink some wine together. Um, Michelle is a dear friend, and so we've had wine together once or twice. Yeah, now before. and then, every now and again. <laughs> every now and then. So um, I picked a wine. It is a Pet Nat. Uh, from Sicily, from Cantina Marilana, and it's called their Fideli. I picked it for a lot of reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is that it has, it's two sisters who make this wine, and while Michelle's book is not about sisters, it is about two powerful women in the wine industry, and so I was drawn to a woman-made wine, and then I was like, oh yeah, that one 
really, really fits. And it feels, I don't know, it feels like a wine that they might drink. Mm-hmm. I love the so, idea. The sister made wine. Yeah. What do you think, Michelle? I like it. It's a little, with a pet nat, is it always a little bit like kind of yeasty or am I making that up? Which I like. I mean, especially because, you know, it's, it's sort of a brunch wine for us. So therefore it feels appropriate. It's true, right? Yeah, we're recording this on a Sunday around brunch time. Um, yeah, so the way that pet nats are made, they are bottled before fermentation is complete. And so that leads to yeast set. And almost always they're unfiltered. I have come across a few pet nats where the yeast isn't actually in the bottle. Um, but for the most part, the yeast is in the bottle. Um, and so they they do. They kind of spend time hanging out with that yeast. I always tell people it's like Saison beer. It's like that bottle conditioned beer. So it's like lightly effervescent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has that kind of yeasty, bready yeah. kind of And then like maybe you can tell me if you disagree, but I felt like later a little cut apple-y. Mm-hmm. I think I was just I was just talking to somebody about this wine and they wanted to know what grape it was. And I was like, oh, and I like hesitated because I was like, well, it's pet nat of Moscato. But then I was like, but don't assume that you know what that means. You know, and I like <laughs> was really it was a great sales. Yeah, like, uh, you know nothing. Um, <laughs> but I know what you, I know what people would be thinking because I would be thinking the same thing with the Moscato. Like you're thinking of the Moscato Diasti, right? Right. Exactly. Right. And they're like, how sweet is it? And I was like, ah, actually, it's not, but it's really fruity because that's just like Moscato's thing. And it's funny that you say the cut apple thing because I totally agree with you. And I feel like there are other times where this wine is like all peach mm. to me. But today it's, I don't know, it's very apple Maybe it's the September. For a minute, I was I'm, I'm getting a little spice and I realized that, in fact, I just made a plum tort and put it in the oven. So it's actually off my hand. You know? so, <laughs> so don't don't trust me on that. Well, I just had apple yeah. pancakes, so I'm so like, mm, sure, yeah. it tastes like apples and apples and baked goods. Like, like, it's yeah, exactly like that. And cinnamon and all those things. I wanted to pick this. You know, I was trying to think of your characters in your book and their ethos of trying to find, well, I guess they kind of go back and forth about this, but trying to find, you know, I don't know, unsung gems um, and particularly a, lo- a love of Italian. Um, and so... that kind of like led me down this path. Um, Michelle and I did travel together to Italy years ago and drank some wine and I thought, oh, I'll just do one of those. And then this kind of caught my eye. Um, So here we are drinking pet nap. Yeah. So I just wanted to show you the label. I just think it's really precious. It's these two young girls walking through the vineyards. Um, It's one of, I feel like it's that kind of label that is eye-catching without being cheesy. I feel like the labels are another... I mean, like, the, you know, the book talks a lot about wine in a way that made me think it's a lot like publishing and the label and book cover thing is really analogous, you know, and the labels are so much more beautiful now than they used to be. And people have so much more um, fun with them, I think. It makes it just a lot more, a lot more pleasurable to poke around among them. It is. And I feel like it's, you know, I read a statistic a few years ago that like two thirds of Americans buy wine based mm-hmm. on the label, which I think like totally makes sense, right? And I think that we grew up learning like don't judge a book by its cover and I'm like is that true anymore you know like it's sort of true because there are definitely like I don't know trends in both wine labels and book covers where I'm like okay how many different I don't know kind of like watercolory blobs Mm -hmm. (laughs) can I have on a book cover um but but yes I agree with you that like they are more pleasing am I right in thinking because I feel like the first time I started being like oh there's a label that caught my eye and I'll buy it because of this was when Bonnie Dune started making that like was it the big house red and the big house white and 
Yeah, that was about that time. For those of you who might be too young, yeah, to know, exactly. Smiles <laughs> aren't. I don't know. Weren't. No, no, no. I was. I was definitely working at Cezanne University when those wines came. Really about. Yeah, that was about that that time where like they started to pay more attention to labels. And I think Bonnie Dune was a huge factor. Yellowtail, mm. believe it or not, is credited with being a huge factor. Like people liked the, you know, they then became to be known as like the critter oh. labels, like anything that put an animal on things. Um, but yeah, and there was like that um, House Red came a little bit after the Bonnie Dune one. And, you know, it was just like big blocky black letters on a yep. white label. But then there was like that whole pushback with people of like, well, it can't be serious mm. wine. And like, I just saw that I poured a tasting on Friday night and I just saw that where I was talking with folks and I was like, well, this is kind of like the, I don't know, the unsung hero of this lineup of the five wines I was pouring. And I was like, and I think it's because it doesn't have as exciting a label. And all the young people were like, yeah, totally. It doesn't. And then the older folks were like, that's the kind of wine I drink. And it was like such an interesting, like, right. You know, like just, I think it just depends on when you like came of age drinking. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about this wine before we actually talk to you about writing and your oh, book? I don't know that I have much more to say except that I really enjoy it and I love a pet nap. I just feel like they're they're just like pleasant and easy drinking and unpretentious and like they're just a, a pleasure, I think. I completely agree with you. I really, I think that I thought that they were a trend that was going to go away. Not that I haven't always liked them, but I definitely thought that they would kind of fade and I'm glad that it's not a huge corner of the market, but I'm glad that they are around and that there are some interesting choices because I love a pen app. So I'm glad. Okay, it is time to decant. This is the section where we let our subject breathe a little bit. So we are, as you know already, we're talking with Michelle Wilgen about her book, Wine People. And it is Michelle's fourth novel. Michelle, do you want to tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, so Wine People is about two women who work in the wine importing business in New York City in the early aughts. And one of them, Ren, kind of clawed her way into it from the restaurant business um, and does not come from a family that was a bunch of wine drinkers and, you know, is constantly trying to feel comfortable in this world. And the other one is her colleague who is named Cecily, and she was born into it. She was born... um, to prestigious growers in Sonoma who grow, but they don't make their own wine. And that is sort of, that's the dream that she has. But, you know, as sometimes happens with somebody who has sort of excelled at everything that they have done, she's never quite had to test herself. And so that's sort of the the vulnerability Mm -hmm. that she has is she's just not sure that she can do that next thing. Mm -hmm. I I loved your book. Um, I should preface it by saying that I was the first person that Michelle interviewed (laughs) um, when she began her process. And we're going to talk about that process. Before we kind of dive further in, for those of you who are here in Madison, we are going to do a book club. It's the first ever Table Wine Book Club. And I'm so happy that it's Michelle's book. So we are actually going to get together with Michelle. It's going to be Monday, October 30th, the time TBD, but it will be in the evening sometime. So if you want to uh, pick up a copy at your local indie bookstore and read Wine People, basically along with us, then we'll get together with Michelle at the end of October, drink wine, and you can ask her your questions. And I'm thinking that that conversation will be a little more focused on maybe the narrative of the book. And for today, what I'd love to talk more about, because I think it's so fascinating, is both the writing and the research process so that people have a chance to read your book and we're not giving too much away. So with that, I guess I'll ask, why wine? Mm. Why why did you choose wine? Well, I've for one thing, I just love to write about anything restaurant, food, wine related. And I have since I was 
you know, in my teens or early 20s, and I went to work in a restaurant so that I could learn uh, to have any kind of background in order to write about food and wine. Because the first time, like, I'd read MSK Fisher, and I was like, well, I shall do this myself. And then I went to sit down, and I was like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I don't even know what I'm going to write about. So I thought, well, I better just go immerse myself in something. And I always remembered a few of the things that I heard about wine importing from my time at L'Etoile, which was like 97 to 2000. So I was like 23 to 26. Um, and one of the things was realizing that the wine is an agricultural product. Like we thought of it as, oh, here's this, not we, I thought of it as this like high-end luxury product that it is. It's expensive. It's enjoyed in like often in a rarefied atmosphere, um, although people are more casual about it now than they were back then. But it, first and foremost, like farmers have to get it started. And so it was one of those little tensions that I just had in my head as an interesting thing for many years. Um, and then a few years later, you know, 20 or so, I had to think about, like, what's the next book going to be? And I wanted it to be something that would be fun, like fun to read and fun to write. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to talk to a few people in the wine business because I, I thought maybe it's time to try that out. And um, you never know when you first start talking to people, like, will there actually be something there or will there turn out to be less than you thought? And it was definitely not less than I thought. Yeah. Like, as soon as I started talking to people, it was so fun that I was just like, I'll talk to anybody and everybody because I didn't know what the story would be. All I had to do, my job for a long time was just to talk to anybody who would talk to me. So research was mostly interviewing folks in the wine industry, yeah. I guess. Is yeah. That kind so, of as, as you know, of course, yeah. I started with you literally being like, <laughs> I have incredibly basic questions about how this industry works. And yeah. so that was great. And then I also literally, I bought a book called How to Import Wine because I, you know, ideally you save the really boring procedural stuff for like things that you can read and look at. Um, but the rest of it was putting yeah. the call out over social media and friends of friends and just saying, if you work anywhere in the wine business, I would love to talk to you. So I talked to importers. I talked to salespeople. I talked to what I think might be the greatest job in the world, which was a chef at a winery. And so she just had to create these menus for like eight oh. people at a time um, in, a, in a winery in California. Yeah. And I'm utterly unqualified for this job, but I'm still a little sad that I don't have it. Um, and then we did a lot of, you know, like I went to visit wineries and like I was in Portland for a literary conference and I went to go visit a Portland winemaker and just talked to him for like three hours and bought some wine and, um, just, just ask people all about like, what is interesting about this business? What is great about it? What's terrible? How do you, what does success look like? What does failure look like? Um, and, and just all of those different things, what kind of people do you encounter? And the more that I heard, the more themes kind of kept popping up and it began to sort of fill me in on what I, I wanted to actually focus on. Yeah. So what did pop up that was kind of like were the threads that you wanted to pull? Yeah. Out I mean, one of the biggest ones, um, it's funny, like it, it, the book uses it, but it's not primarily about it. But people kept talking about alcoholism and I was I really totally. didn't intend to write about it that much. But people just kept saying this really is a thing because. I think I had assumed, like, everybody's got it under control, right? You work in this business, you know how to deal with it. Um, but in fact, it is a substance you have to have some respect for, and you can't just go all out on it forever. And so most people, it seemed, had to either figure out how to incorporate it into their lives in a way that wasn't going to take it over, or they were going to leave the business, um, or there was just going to be some version, but there was going to be a reckoning at some point with this, this general lifestyle. Uh, so that was really interesting to me. The idea of succession came up a lot, especially with, you know, with oh, growers, yeah. people who've got this land to manage and who's going to do it. But I think one of the really big things was this, the idea of just conviviality, that like you have to yeah. sit with people to drink this product. For the most part, you are going to be sitting around the table with somebody to encounter it. And so people really felt that that was one of the big draws 
of it was the ability to just be like, this is this is the main thing we are here to do. We have to sit together and, you know, enjoy it with people. And yes, it sounds like a cliche, but it's also simply the truth. It totally is. I think picking up on a lot of what you said, like I when I came into the industry, people would talk about, you know, like the farmers or they talk about the winemakers by name. And I I honestly I kind of brushed it all off. Like it just felt like I'm never going to know that stuff or I also had this mindset and I don't completely disagree with my former self, but this mindset of like, is the wine good? Can we just be objective about it? Like we don't need to tell the romantic stories because everything has a romantic story, you know, or, or, you know, when it's a small producer, everybody has a great story, right? Everybody has, you know, like their little parcel of land and their mom's family Mm -hmm. recipe. And, you know, they're the seventh generation and all that stuff. And it all sounds great. Um, but then I went on my first professional wine trip, you know, with other people and I was like, oh my God, this is what you mean. You know, like, oh, I get it now. And there's a way to fall in love with the people behind the wine and tell their story while also, you know, just like being pure and clear about whether the wine is good or not. And as you were talking, I was thinking back, I went to France last year and had a lot of really great visits and I I don't blame anybody. It was during harvest, but there was like one visit where, we were in a somewhat sterile environment and we just tasted the wines and the person was very nice, but like, you know, it was just a wine tasting, you know, we tasted however many wines, 30 wines and that was it. And then we followed it up with a visit to Eric Texier, who has always been one of my heroes and Eric's there and it's his, his adult children and all of their friends in the small town. And they're all making the wine rolling cigs and like stomping in the rain boots. And then we just like sat down at a table in the field and had lunch together. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. That's going to stick with me, you know, forever. Yeah. 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 One of my favorite like research moments um, was one that you were there for, which was the place in, in Italy. I think it was, Gucci? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it might have been the other one where the bottling truck uh, arrived. And we, that was no, Gucci. that was okay. Gucci. Yeah. yeah. We, so we just happened to be there when the yeah. bottling truck kept like trundling up the hillside and suddenly is, you know, they yeah. had this whole operation. And it had never occurred to me that this was a thing. Um, but it was fascinating. No. So I took a bunch of video of that. And I just, I loved that little, that moment. Yeah. And Michelle did include that in her book, which I was so excited about because this is like I had never heard of it. I mean, I've been to many, many, many wineries and most people have their own bottling lines. And this is a way for, you know, I mean, Bucci's not even a small producer. It's just a way for them to focus on the other aspects of winemaking and aging and let the bottlers, you know, just kind of swoop in for And that was one of the cool things about some of the other winemakers that I talked to who were like just getting started. You know, they're really young. They're sort of apprenticing. And they're, you know, one of the things that they do, which one of the characters in the book will later talk about, is you just have to get your stuff and you just have to find a way to make it. And so you borrow this and you beg that. And um, so out in like Sonoma and Napa, there were a lot more of these bottling trucks that solved that exact problem, right? They These are not people who are like, I'll just build my own, you know, facility. That'll be fine. Or they don't have the money to rent it. And so it makes this thing accessible to a lot more people than it would be otherwise. Did you travel a lot for research or as you were I did. Um, I mean, not a ton. Certainly some of the most important stuff that just popped in and I didn't even know what I was looking for from it was the places that we went to in Italy that just sort of gives you just, I don't know, you, you have a memory of it, you have a feeling of it and you're not guessing at it. You know, I, I'm happy to make things up. You know, I haven't yeah. been to Germany, but I write about Germany based on people I talk to. Um, but I went to also mm-hmm. a few places, like I said, around Oregon. And then a friend of mine in San Luis Obispo was like, you know, I'm right near wine country. Why don't you just come out and we'll set up a whole bunch of visits. And my friend Corey, who used to work in the wine importing business, um, came out with me. 
And so we did this little like mini version of what these characters do, where we went to, I don't know, like maybe six or seven different facilities and tried out all their wine. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that day, I totally understood, you know, people saying at the end of these days, you don't want any more wine. You want a beer, you want a gin tonic, you want anything else. Because I was like, I don't want any more red wine, even though I had some that was delicious. But I was just like, please just give me that white over there. And, um, it, but it was, it was really interesting. And I had that same experience you were talking about where some, you were just like, ah, here we are learning all the stuff. And we're meeting like the young people who are coming up in this business. And then there's some where it's really slick and it feels kind of corporate, you know, and you're just sort of like, I see you, you have all the same blonde wood and the same sort of like rustic tasting room. Um, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't feel the mm-hmm. same. You know that it's kind of like, get in, get out. We're going to do our thing. This is the pattern, you know, and it was so much more fun. One yeah, of my favorite totally. ones was, um, Janelle Ducey out in Paso, I think. To, who was like a female winemaker, is a female winemaker, and I believe maybe her dad started, and she was the one who sort of pushed to get them into winemaking instead of just grape growing. Okay. Um, and so that was mm-hmm. really fascinating. I loved hearing from her about, like, what's it like to actually do this job and take over this winery, and also their wine was delicious. Yeah, that's so cool. People are always asking me about travel, so I felt like yeah. I had to <laughs> take the opportunity to ask someone else about it. When you were, you know, so you kind of do all this research, and then at some point you say, okay, I'm going to start writing. What was that point? Or like, how did you know, like, it's time? I really had to force myself because, A, for me, that first draft is the hardest part. Like, some people find that the most fun part. But for me, I was just like, oh, I just want to keep on researching for as long as I could. And so I probably did the research for, you know, six or eight months or something like that. And by the time I had started to figure Mm -hmm. out who my two main characters were and the general thing I was going to start with, the situation, um, I, I ended that with the trip to California with those two friends. And so at that mm. point, I was like, okay, I think you have to start writing now because there will still be things you have to follow up yeah. and like gaps you have to fill, but you need to know enough to at least understand the basics of the world or else you really don't know where to begin writing. You're just sort of like, you have, you're clueless. Um, and by that point, I had amassed yeah. enough familiarity that I knew I could sketch things in and then go back and follow up if I needed to. So then I had to force myself to start writing. Are you an outliner or are you a write it and see what well, comes out? Well, I'm somewhere in between. Um, I used to just write it and see what comes out. And that meant that I had a lot of stuff that I had to throw away because the sentences might be nice, yeah. but there was no story or there was no tension. And so one of the things that I've tried to get better at is coming up with like a, a, a story generating situation. So like something has to be causing mm. a problem. Something has to be in tension with the other. Uh, you're in a situation where something is already changing and people have to react to that kind of thing. And, and I will mm-hmm. often have, like with this one, I had the general sense of overall what it was going to be. I knew it was going to take place, a lot of my novels, for whatever the reason, seem to take place over about a year. But this one takes place over a, a much larger span of time. It's probably closer to maybe a decade or a little less. And I knew generally where these two were going to end up with regard to each other. And sort of, like, you mm-hmm. often just have to know, am I headed in the upward direction or am I headed in the downward direction? Is this a tragedy or is it, you know, going to go well for people? Yeah. And for me, I have to know that much. But... In the writing, I get much more interesting stuff if I am paying attention to what the characters do and how they behave in the situations I'm creating than if I start off saying, one person will do this and feel this and therefore they'll do that. Then it tends to be a little too rote. Um, But I have to know something or else it's my worst instincts to just be like, oh, now people will talk for no reason and they'll banter for 10 pages, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's so easy to get lost there. Okay, so you, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and you've done all this research and you've heard all these really great stories from people across the industry and something inside of you says, I'm going to focus on importing. 
It's an unusual choice. I feel like people would have gone with the winemaker. And I know that your previous book, Bread and Butter, was about restaurants. So I can kind of understand why you didn't, you know, stick with that kind of customer facing part of it. But what made you choose importing? I mean, it's a really good question because I started with it so early that I I almost forgot what was it that made me focus on it. You know, it was just always sort of part of that. And I think (laughs) some of it is that I loved the idea of like somebody has to go travel and go to these places and choose the things that they really love and want to share with people. So I loved the idea. I thought the travel was going to be really fun. I also remembered very early on talking to somebody who described working, this doesn't have to be an importer, but you know, it happened to be, he's saying like in New York city at their like Monday morning conference table and how all the wine reps, all the sales reps sort of resembled the neighborhoods that they sold to. And that right there is is the most wonderful like writer's prompt that you could think of. So I just was already totally. headed down that, that, that road. And I'm not sure why. I think I thought a winemaking thing would be a, sort of the obvious idea that we would follow. Like, you know, this, yeah. you know these women are going to go into winemaking. And it's, it's certainly adjacent. People make wine in this world. You know, it's necessary. But I yeah. think I just wanted to open up this little part that maybe we don't talk about as much. And I thought it was just really interesting to think about. Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree with you. I love that it's about importing because it's a aspect of the business that – people really don't know that much about, you know, and people, customers will come back from wherever, Mm -hmm. France or Italy, and they're like, so I went to this winery and can you carry their wines? And I'm like, oh, there are so many middlemen between me and the winery, you know, like, no, it does not quite work like that. And I remember we had some of that Um, really, that really lovely, like just easy drinking local wine. And I remember my friend Corey saying, we won't get that in the U.S. because it is not made to travel. It's not made to deal with any of that stuff. It is just like the great local wine and they get it. And by the time you add all the tariffs and the travel and all that, we're not going to like come in as you and I saw somebody come in with like a jug and they, you know, filled it from a spigot in the wall. They're Vino Rosso and they're Vino Bianco. Um, So unfortunately, we just, we have to travel over there and drink all of their, their cheap and delicious wine. Oh, I know it's like, tough, but we'll suffer. We'll su- yeah. we'll suffer through it, I guess. So you mentioned earlier that the kind of one of the things that kept coming up in these conversations was the very real danger of alcoholism. Were there other things that kind of surprised you as you were talking to people, or things that you were like, "Oh wow, I didn't know that about the wine industry at all"? That kind of came yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite ones was about the teeth. So I just went and I visited I visited oh, totally. a book club the other night and they gave me a little thank you gift that was a bunch of little things that also included a tube of Sensodyne because one of the I things that uh, a friend of mine said when I was like, so, you know, you've been out of wine importing for a number of years. She does something totally different now. And I said, would you ever want to go back? And she said, oh, yeah, I do think about it. And I said, well, what keeps you from going back? And I thought she'd say the travel schedule, you know, my kids, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, oh, my teeth. I, I'm worried about my teeth because when they go on these trips, like you're tasting all this really harsh young wine, even if you're spitting it all, it's still having all that contact with your teeth. And so their teeth are killing them, you know, and I think they really truly worried about protecting them. So you get these little details about the experiential, you know, feeling of doing this job. And so that was a really fun one. And also just the fact that like, it is glamorous, it is delicious, it is wonderful. It's also kind of backbreaking in a lot of ways. There's a real physical toll to this work. And I think that was another thing that maybe I hadn't fully internalized until I talked to so many people. Yeah, I think that that's the teeth is so funny. I years ago I went to a Terry Teas tasting in Chicago, and so it was like oh, at that time Terry was importing wines under his own mm-hmm. import company, and he was you know all of these German producers, right? So I basically had one day of that. It was not a whole trip mm-hmm. to the Mosul, right? It was like one day of. I mean, I don't know. There were probably 
300 wines or something. And my teeth just hurt so much. And I was also young enough in the industry that I thought, this is so stupid. I thought that I didn't have to spit Mm. or like I was, I was self-conscious about spitting. And so then I didn't start my day spitting. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do that. Like I'm here with my boss and I am working and like, you can't, no, no matter how small the pores are, you no, just like, And I hated it. the idea yeah. of spitting. And the, that was another thing that that trip to California really sort of clarified for me because it feels so disrespectful, right? And when else in your life are you like, now I'll spit something out that somebody has made for me, you know? Like it just feels deeply, totally. deeply wrong. And so I never wanted to do it. And then I, once you're like three or four tastes in and you're going to the next winery, you're like, I have to. For once you, you've got a taste of this and you're yeah. like, Oh, I understand now because it's still, you're still going to take some in. The alcohol is going to, you know, get through the soft palate and everything. Um, But that was a real thing is figuring out how to spit and having to overcome my own emotional resistance to it. Totally. You know, and then there are those wines like the, you know, like the, yeah, I'm not spitting that moments of like, nope, I'm drinking this champagne. I am not going to spit this back out. You know, like those are, those are good moments, right? I know you, I feel like you've been out in the world, like talking about wine people, how is reception on the it's book been going? It's really lovely. I mean, the the thing that I would hope for and that I, I've gotten, so I can't ask for any better, is just people really feeling connected to the characters and loving, you know, they have really often been like, I had no idea this was so interesting. You know, whether people are interested mm-hmm. in wine or not, and, you know, many people I have sort of just forced to read it because they're my friends and family, and I'm just like, I don't care if you are interested in wine, you just have to read it. I demand it. Um, and almost invariably, everybody's like, I had no idea there was so much to this and it's so compelling. So that I really love. Um, and also just thinking about these two characters, like, you know, these characters are really dear to me. I feel really connected to both of them. And so it's really gratifying when people are like, I can't believe I don't get to learn more about what goes on with them. Like they feel like real people to me. Um, so I'm probably not, I'm not going to write a sequel, but it made me happy to feel like they do seem to live on beyond the confines of the book. Well, that answered my question. I was like, so are you going to keep going with them? Are you? <laughs> no. I mean, when you when you're yeah. done with a book, are you like, and the, those people are done? Almost. Like, always. is there is there any there, book? I mean, you never know, yeah. right? I'm not I'm not like throwing down a, a gauntlet saying I'll never do it. And with my first novel, that was actually it started off as a short story that it was the one time that I felt like actually I think there's more to say about these people. And I, I had the sense that that story had just captured a little a little hint of you know their lives, and I knew there was a lot more. So that became a much bigger thing. And I think you could say the same about these two, but um, I always worry about, I already, you know, have my little niche that I love so much, which is, you know, the food makers and the food producers. And so you just think, oh, I should keep on like challenging myself and I shouldn't go back to these characters. But I would do it if if Mm -hmm. a novel idea came to me that involved one or two of these or somebody else in that world that I just really wanted to write, I would totally do it. You know, you said earlier, and somehow in all of our years of friendship, we've never talked about this. I think that you are an excellent food writer. I think I just love it. I think that you're really, really good at it. And I'm, I'm wondering how do you do it so well? Like, is it a matter of just kind of writing what you're thinking? Are you as when you're drinking or eating, really thinking of how would I write this? I feel like you capture it without it being pretentious or like, overly detailed you know I feel like there's some people who try to be really good at wine writing who just use too many words <laughs> well first of all thank you yeah. um and I don't know exactly I do think that I am better a lot of times at describing what I'm imagining than describing what's right in front of me um and I'm, I'm not sure okay. why that is but I think also that I got into all of this because there are certain words that on the page make me happy to see 
And that was always the case. Like, I remember reading an Ann Beatty story when I was like 16 and it used the word cream because this character was cooking. And I was like, doesn't that make me happy? Just knowing, just seeing this word. <laughs> and it's really funny. But like, those are just words that make me happy. Being in that world of thinking about that stuff makes me happy. And I definitely have had to, I've had to cut down, you know, because a lot of times you are just like, I'll just talk about this forever and I'll tell every single meal. And yeah. I definitely, my editor was like, all right, we do have to cut back on wine. I was like, well, it is a book about wine. And I was you know, very shirty about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, a lot of that happens in the editing. And in the beginning, you just give it all. You know, you talk about absolutely everything and then you figure yeah. out which things are, are worth keeping and the rest. You had to write in order to get the good stuff, but then maybe you don't need to keep it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I just want you all to read this book. I think I that... want you to as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. It's just a lovely yeah, I think you should. Before we wrap up, I mentioned the wine label earlier, and I feel like I just need to acknowledge that your book has just such an awesome it cover. It's so good. And I'm wondering how that came about, what the cover picking process is, how much you're a part of it, yeah. and all that. So all that the book covers, like book covers are so important. And yet the writer is very often, like we're sort of quasi involved, but not really involved. And that's usually how, they, how the publisher will approach it. We're like, they want you to love it. But they also are, you know, really reliant on what their salespeople have to say about these various cover mock-ups. And everybody has, like, if you're not a designer, somebody who works in the visual realm, you might have this general notion in your head, but it's their job to actually take all of this stuff and, and convey it into one particular image. And I think that's incredibly difficult to do, and I have no idea how they do it. So for this one, I would say this publisher involved me more than other publishers have, because that's kind of their whole ethos is to make sure that the writer is more involved. And we had a bunch of early versions of it that were sort of doing something that was like, you know, well, this shows women and it shows it's got the glamour and it's got, and it didn't feel like the book or it did, but in a very mm -hmm. representative way where you're like, it's about wine. So there's some wine, that kind of thing. And so we were all kind yeah. of feeling like, okay, well, you know, we could, we could do with this one, but um, I don't think anybody was turning cartwheels. And then one of the publishers, I think it was like the executive assistant to the publisher, was just like, I'm just not happy with this. And so she started poking around like illustrator sites, I think. And so she found this image, which is of this woman in like a white blouse and a black skirt diving into a, a, a glass of wine. And she just loved it. And they did this little mock-up of a wine cover or of a book cover, a wine cover of a book cover and they just sort of <laughs> presented it to me like very offhandedly we're like we're still doing the others but we just you know what do you think of this and I was like ah, I love it and it's the only time in my entire career that I said no I just love it and I'm not stopping to think about it because every other time it's sort of like it's kind of what you would expect and this took all those different things and made it into something new that I wouldn't have pictured but loved when I saw it and recognized when I saw it so that's that's why I'm very very fond of it. Yeah, it's so great. And if you all haven't, haven't seen it, uh, the cover is gorgeous. And then it beautifully ties in with mm -hmm. the new bags that we got at Table Wine. And Michelle, it was an amazing night where my my bags had just gotten printed. So like I had right. I had proof that mine yeah. came first. But Michelle was like, hey, do you guys want to see the cover of my book? And I was like, are you kidding me? Because Michelle's cover is a woman diving into the glass of wine. And then our new bags are the woman yeah. swimming in the glass yeah, of wine. Yeah, you guys had a very gratifying um, She's not exactly the same cover. woman. I was like, wow, they really like it. You know? So I was very happy. And then I realized why. It was pretty fun. And like at the base of our wine glass is a book, like the woman like had, you know, finished reading and she went, for, you know, she was diving into the wine. So um, yeah, it was just beautiful kismet. I think that that covers everything that like from a writing and wine perspective, I wanted to chat about. Is there anything that you want people to know? I think, you know, just that the, the main thing I would say about this book in general is that it's 
it's meant to be like a fun, pleasurable book and world to be in. It's not stuffy and pretentious. It's really trying to get at like, who was drawn into this world? What can you make of yourself in it? It's about ambition and it's about friendship. And it's, it's pretty funny. You know, there's a lot of joking around in there. And um, so I just feel like every now and again, I'll encounter a really old fashioned version of wine, you know, where somebody is just like, and now I'm drinking a particular French wine and I'm having it with squab. And I'm just like, God, that feels old, you know, like it's delicious. Don't get me wrong. Like I, I will eat and drink all of that stuff. Yeah, you know? totally. But um, yes. I just really wanted to capture the way I think we think about wine now. And it feels different than a lot of the, the cliches people have in their heads about wine. It's a lot more fun. Absolutely. I agree. Thank you so much for thank being you. here. And thank you in advance for book club. So everybody go buy a copy of Wine People, read it. And then join us for conversation in yeah, October. Definitely. And I'll, I'll, I'll Thanks, bring my Michelle. pen and my little wine glass stamp that I carry with me everywhere now. I, I love am. your wine. I love it. I love it. That's great. All right. All right Thanks, thank Michelle. Okay. After that lovely conversation with Michelle, I just wanted it to keep on going. But it is time to wrap up. So it is now our nightcap, kind of the end of the episode. And I wanted to leave you with something that is bringing me joy. I'm stealing this from Pop Culture Happy Hour, which is a podcast that I really love. Every Friday, they ask their guests, what's something that's making you happy this week? And so that is going to be the way that I treat the nightcap. What is making me happy right now? And my answer is American Players Theater. If you're not familiar with it, it is a world-class theater in Spring Green, Wisconsin, They have an indoor theater where they do shows year round, but then they also have an outdoor amphitheater where they do shows for the warmer months. And earlier this summer, my family and I saw Romeo and Juliet, where there are a couple of actors in the show who are deaf and use sign language to communicate. And the way that they staged this performance was absolutely stunning. All of the actors are just amazing. The set design, like literally everything about it. I feel like I've seen Romeo and Juliet many times as my young daughter said, who could beat Leo? And yet there's something about this Romeo that's really special. And tomorrow we're going to go one more time before the summer wraps up to see our town. So if you're not familiar with APT, I cannot recommend it enough. Pack a picnic, buy some wine at Table Wine, go have a picnic in the woods, and then go treat yourself to some absolutely amazing theater under the stars. And with that, chin chin. Thanks so much for listening to the Table Wine Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please like, subscribe, share, and review. That goes a long, long way. Um, We're trying to get this podcast in front of as many people as possible. And you sending it to friends and recommending it out into the world really will help. So thanks so much.